0: We're supposed to be in community, and really K group has been a big part of our lives. It gives you an opportunity to get to know other people that you wouldn't um, spend a whole lot of time with uh, otherwise. There's something about that small group setting And just the open discussion on just a variety of topics that I think draws you in. And it's all about relationships. We're supposed to be accountable, uh, not only to God, but to others. We're getting to talk about God's Word. Being able to do uh, church in the home, so to speak.
1: Well, the song we just sang, I will build my trust upon your word. I will build my life upon your word. And, you know, one thing here at Grace that we want to always be clear about is that the success of God's Word is not determined by how many people fill a room. It's determined on really how we live our lives on Monday, not necessarily our gathering on Sunday. And while we're thrilled that we have a full room today, the truth is that there are lots of people who are attending lots of churches across this nation for many reasons other than they want to be better disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're all in process, and we're all at different places, and we all have struggles. But I hope that the cry of your heart today is that you want to build your life more and more upon God's word and upon his truth. And so as we read back in Romans 12 today, just I want you to, as you're flipping over there or opening your phone to, to look at it or just follow along on the screen, just say a prayer and, and ask God to open your heart to his word, his authority And not mine, but me just as the communicator of God's word to you, and the Holy Spirit will make this real and true in your life. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 6, where we've been the last three weeks. So let's read this together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind Though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that we can anchor into our hearts, into our souls. It will help us in a world that is confusing, that runs contrary to you, that pulls us in many, many different directions. God, that your word will be our anchor to keep us close to you and close to your heart. And Father God, I pray that you will take your word and make it real and help us to apply it today. And God, help us to live it out tomorrow. And God, we pray you'll be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Think about as a kid, if you had a a pretty decent upbringing, a pretty good childhood, my kids think I had definitely a a leave it to beaver type upbringing because the little town I grew up in, West Virginia, was just, we were purposely, uh, just perfectly nestled right in the, the little town community area where we could easily jump on our bikes and ride to baseball fields, basketball courts. I mean, it was all right there within just a safe little distance from our house. And so it it was great. And I just remember the wonder and excitement of a kid just waking up, especially in summer when there wasn't school, and just the excitement and the energy we had uh, for the day, uh, jumping on our bikes, heading to the baseball field and playing ball for three or four hours without a care in the world. And we just had this, this, this view of the world that just was, man, it's great. It's awesome. Everything's so exciting. And we had this wonder and amazement. You remember that? Where it didn't take a lot to like entertain or excite you, that you just you just loved being alive as a kid. And, and unfortunately that age is getting the, the the innocence of childhood is getting pushed further and further back where younger kids are experiencing more and more things that they shouldn't be experiencing at, at such a young age. But I just remember even up into eight, nine, and ten just having this innocence about us. And, and I think about the words of Jesus that where he said whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You don't have this childlike uh, innocence about you, about the things of God. And what are you specifically talking about there? He was talking to his disciples who who wanted, who wanted thought being prominent and great in God's kingdom, that's what was important. But Jesus was showing them that really it was the humility and the honest faith in God, which is what he valued in his kingdom. And And, and so I tell you that to say that I think we easily and we allow life to just kind of bring disenchantment and heartache on us and we lose our wonder and excitement for life and not just for life, but more, more tragically, we lose it for God. As a kid growing up in church, I mean, I just remember thinking about how great God was. And I had a parent tell me the other day that their child is, they're so excited about Jesus. I think she's in kindergarten and that, that she just can't help but tell everybody about Jesus. And the question is, if that's true of you, if you were five years old and you were excited about Jesus and you talked about Jesus all the time, what changed between then and now? Honestly, what did you learn more about God? And so the more you've learned about God, the less excited you are about God. Or, you know, as, have you seen more of his revelation of himself in Scripture then it sours you to God? I, I would think that's probably not the case, honestly, right? For most of us, the reason we... Are, uh, we lack awe of God and we lack wonder of God is because of other people and because of situations that have happened and people who have hurt us and damaged us, and how that we, even in the church, have had bad experiences where we look at God and think, What's you know, why is he so mean? Why is he so angry? Why is he so against me? And that's why it's so important that we build our lives on God's word so we understand what God really says. Because, where else, honestly, where else? can we get knowledge about God? Because our logic, our thinking in our heads sure isn't going to get us anything, right? It's only going to get us frustration and misunderstanding and, and we're just going to be confused and it's going to leave us, our, our human deductions are just going to leave us at a loss. We go to God's word to learn that God is for his glory and God is for our good. And our good sometimes isn't the way that we interpret our good. We, think our good means easy life, comfortable surroundings, and we lose the wonder and amazement of God, and all of a sudden we turn it and we make it about us rather than about him and what he's doing, his purposes, and his ways, and all of a sudden we get disenchanted and we get um, discouraged in life, and we look at other people as more adversarial, and instead of seeing people as opportunity for ministry, we see people as something to avoid, because they bring us down or they make us stressed or bring anxiety. And in this passage today, I think we see two things that will help us in our service and our ministry and what God has called us to do in seeing the world and seeing him for who he is and, and living the way that he's called us to live. The first one, they're very simple. The first one is a true view of God will free and empower you to live for Jesus a true, a correct view of God will free and empower you to live for Jesus. And we talked about this a couple weeks now, and we've talked about it a lot, but I think we just need to keep going back to right at the beginning, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Paul says, look, I'm going I'm to appeal to you. I'm, I'm encouraging, I'm urging you to live a certain way. Based upon all the other things that I've told you in chapters 1 through 11. If you've been here, you've heard me say that a bunch. Because the truth is, we want to live our lives starting at chapter 12 and moving on. I just want to do things. I want to live a certain way. But we lack the power for that because we truly miss the point that Paul is making here in the first 11 chapters. And summing it up here in verse 1, that he's saying, All this, therefore, is based upon by the mercies of God. This, and to sum up the mercies of God, it's, it's his justification based upon Christ and what he did for us. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. By faith alone in Christ alone, justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And so what we see here is the gospel is not only our power source, but it's our motivation. Our power source and our motivation for living. It's our power source, the Holy Spirit, God lives in us, Christ in us, the hope of glories. And also, it's our motivation as we look at the gospel, as we stay tethered to the cross, that's our motivation, this gratitude for God's grace. And that's where the difficulty, when we lose our awe of God, we lose our view of God and who he is, that he's just, right, and holy. He's perfect. And our sin has separated us from him. And because of compassion, his mercies, his compassion, he sends Jesus to be the sacrifice and deliver us from this state we were in, where we were objects of wrath, and turns us into his children, adopts us into his family. And when you lose that childlike wonder and amazement for the gospel, you're going to lose your motivation to live for Christ, plain and simple. When you lose that that awe of the gospel, that what God did for us. And that's why Paul said, based upon all of this, you need to be awestruck by God, by his majesty, by his power, by his grace, by his might. And if you truly begin to see God and see what he did, then it changes the way that we live our lives. If you don't don't see God that way, you're not going to live your life any different. And he says that, essentially will waste our life if we don't live by in light of God's mercies, that we won't see God's will, that we won't be able to discern God's will, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. And so step back. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's will versus your way is good, pleasing, and perfect to God? Is it good, does God give you a life that is enriching, full of joy, regardless of what comes your way? And that's the truth, because I think... Verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12 really are a summary for the whole Christian life. The whole Christian life is based out of these two verses. So critical. Let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand, but if you died today, do you know that you would spend eternity with God in heaven? If you died today, would you know that you would spend eternity with God in heaven? I would say the vast majority of this room would raise your hand and affirm that to be true. But Let me ask you a question. Why do you find it much easier to embrace God's promise for life after death than you do for his, life, for his promise for life before death? Why is it so easy for us to say, I know I'll be in heaven with God if I died? I've I, I built my faith upon your word, and I believe that to be true. But then it comes to just the practical living out and there's this disconnect that happens. This disconnect that happens. And Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and you might have it to the full. You might have it abundantly. And and I think the reason why is because we know, and just picture a rope from me to the cross here, we know that positionally in Christ we're tethered to the cross. We understand that. But then practically... We just want this tether to be very long with lots and lots of leeway for us to kind of then live life as how we want to live it, just loosely connected to the cross. But if like tragedy happens and bad things come our way, then quickly we suck back in and we pull back in and we're closer to the cross and we understand, oh, I need you, Jesus. Well, especially, you know, if if something bad happens in my life or I get a a diagnosis or something, you know, comes my way to one of my family members, I need to pray. I got to seek God. And we draw back in. But when life's going good, we tend to just drift and live it our own way. But the very same way that we depend upon Christ for the afterlife, we should depend upon him for the abundant life. The same exact way. And so... I think on a Sunday morning crowd where we have quite a few people here today, we need to be reminded that being tethered to the cross doesn't mean that we just get our worship on on Sunday. All right, I got to get my worship on. It's it's God's day. I give God my day. It's also not implementing just certain moral behaviors, turning over a new leaf, desiring some good principles to live by. That's not being tethered to the cross. It's not aligning yourself with more conservative people. I hear people say this a lot. When I was younger. I was much more liberal, but now that I'm, I'm older, I'm getting more conservative. And most of the time when they're talking to me as a preacher, they're equating this to some sort of Christian values, like being more conservative politically makes them more of a Christian. And it's not just a new way of looking at the world. Being tethered to Christ is radical. It, it's, it's incredible. John 14, 20, here's what being tethered to Jesus is. He says, in that day, he's talking to his disciples about he's going to Return to heaven. He's going to die. He's going to return to heaven. And he says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father. I'm in my Father. And he says, you are in me, and I am in you. He says, I'm going to be with my Father, but don't worry, because I'm in you, and you're in me. That's this idea of, and we talked about this in Colossians, our union with Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And this union with Christ, that that expression that may be new to you, captures the reality that Jesus dwells in our hearts. What does that mean? Because we use that expression, invite Jesus into our heart. It means he's at the center, the deepest part of our life. We're not just close to Jesus. We're one with Jesus. We're one with him. And that's why we use the expression here at Grace a lot. It's all about Jesus because it is. It's all about Jesus. Life is all about Jesus if you're tethered. To that cross, If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you know that your afterlife is assured, then you're tethered to him, that he's in you, you're in him. And so Jesus doesn't just show up like some superhero when things are bad. Jesus lives in us. He's part of us. He, he is living his life through us. And so if we're supposed to have an abundant life, a full life, some of you are sitting there and you're asking this question to yourself. You're saying, I don't get it because some people seem like they have a lot more joy in life than I do. They have a lot more happiness fulfillment in life than I do. Well, I think we go back to our text here where Paul says that we need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Present our bodies as a living sacrifice. All right, that, that seems a little weird to us. Let me, make it, let me bring it to our current vernacular for anybody who's a sports fan in here. All right. If you played baseball growing up, all right, maybe you played in high school. Occasionally, the coach might call upon you to sacrifice. What does that mean? What did it mean when your coach said sacrifice? I mean, you probably thought, Coach, this is not the time for me to sacrifice. I'm, I'm, I'm taking one out of the park. All right. And, and he says, No. Trust me, sacrifice. What does that mean for those who aren't baseball people? You don't know what I'm talking about. It means you give up yourself, oftentimes you bunt, lay down a bunt, you give yourself up, you know that you're going to be an out to advance the runners or possibly even bring a runner home to score. And so you're saying, you're, you're basically saying, look, I'm dead, I'm, 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 I'm out of the picture here, I'm giving myself up for the good of the team. And so when Paul says, look, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, He's given us some great insight on our perspective and the way that we should live our lives. That in view of God's mercy, we stand at the cross every day and we say, I'm giving myself up for the greater good, which is the glory of God. And sometimes we think, God, I, I don't want to, to give myself up. I, I want to get as much out of this world that I, I, that I can. I want to feel good. I want to be happy. And we, all of a sudden, we think that means more stuff or more freedom away from God's truth. And we disobey the coach. And we, we go up, and instead of scoring around and, and laying down a sacrifice bunt, instead we go up there and we swing And you know what happens? We may think that we were successful for a while, but eventually it catches up to us. Because we're not, as people who are positionally tethered to the cross, we're not living the way that God's called us to live. And so the Christian life is a daily giving over of our lives, of our bodies, in obedience to God, motivated by what? The the mercy of God. And we stand at the foot of the cross, we see Jesus there dying for us, And all that is ours now because of his sacrifice. And not only do we see him dying on the cross, but also he says the very power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. So we don't worship a Savior that's simply on the cross. We worship a Savior who's alive and he lives within us. And that's why we can sing like the last song that we'll sing today. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. His blood and His righteousness. That's how we build our lives. So we're, we're positionally tethered. But I mean, back to my question. Why do some Christians experience more joy than others? Why do some Christians not produce any fruit in their life? Well, I spent some time this past week rereading a great passage of Scripture. Jot this down in your notes. John 15, abiding in Christ passage. And, and there's a very, very... Startling and shocking part in that passage where Jesus says that for a person who doesn't bear fruit, he cuts off that branch and throws it into the fire. Basically, he says, You're not my child if there's no fruit being produced out of your life. You're not in me. I'm not in you. So, Christians produce fruit, some fruit out of your life. And what is fruit? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, meekness. These are things that God produces in our life. Yeah, Not as quick as we wish they would be produced, right? You look back on your life and you think, wow, I can't believe I've been a believer 30 years and I'm still reacting that way in that situation. But there's progression. There's movement toward God in your life. There's fruit that's being produced Unfortunately, it's going to be like some some people will be like what Paul said in Corinthians, where you're going to be saved, but like by the skin of your teeth, just barely escaping the fire. Meaning that you're like you just you were just barely there. What does that mean? It says like your life was just barely producing any fruit. There was really very little to prove that you were a Christian. You were still in Christ, and Christ was in you, but you've lived your life solely for yourself and not for anything else but yourself. But God. Begins to work and change us. And he says that this living sacrifice, we're presenting our lives as a living sacrifice. And he says, that's our spiritual act of worship, which is your spiritual worship. It's your worship. And so let's go back to where we started from at the beginning. What was it? That our view of God, that's what gives us the power to live this life for Jesus. And so ultimately that is this idea of worship. It's this idea of Responding to God. God is seeking people to worship him. Let me give you a a definition of worship. Worship is our response of all we are, mind, emotion, body, will, to what God is and says and does. Let me read that for you again. Worship is our response of all that we are, mind, emotions, will, and our body, to what God is and what God says and does. And and this is our worship is expressed by the things that we say, and the way that we live our lives. The things we say and the way that we live our lives. In my time with God early in this week, I was reading in Psalm chapter forty and verse sixteen. I think it was Monday or Tuesday, and these were the words of the psalmist. It says, "But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who, they, those who love your salvation say continually." Great is the Lord. He says, those who love Jesus, those who love God in the Old Testament context here, should say, great is the Lord. Great is the Lord. Wednesday night, I was over in refuge, helping out over there. And I was in the back, and the band was up playing a song called Great Are You Lord. And as they were singing this song, the words to the the song, the verse says, It's your breath in our lungs. I think it might be the chorus so it's our breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise for you it's our breath it's your breath in our lungs and it's your breath we're going to respond and pour out praise to you and I couldn't help but get a, a little bit emotional in that moment And this is very insignificant for many of you who are struggling and dealing with some serious 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 health issues so I'm not making light of yours by acting like mine is so is so big and and, and so important But for the last five or six years, I've had to be kind of been hooked to this inhaler that I have to use. And I use it nearly three or four times a week at least, Uh, especially when I exercise, I have to use it. And it's not a big deal. It's not that much of an inconvenience at all. But the truth is, uh, it it, it is a reminder of my frailty. It's of my humanness and and how that this work is still, you know, I'm, I'm still waiting for redemption. But the last three weeks... It's been awesome. The last three weeks for the first time in five years. I haven't had to use my inhaler one single time. And and so I was praising God in that moment for that. It's your breath in my lungs. Thank you, God. And and that's what God wants, simple things like that. Just give him praise for the good things that he brings into your life, the good things that he does. And and be be intentional about that. That's our worship. That's, That's bringing our worship to God in those moments and just expressing thanks for him and what he's done for us. And then then the verse says, all the the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. Great are you, Lord. Man, in in, in that moment as the band was singing, that I just could not help but get a little bit emotional because to think that all the earth is shouting their praise to God and worship to God, and everything is going to cry ultimately and kneel before our Savior and say, your Lord, your Savior. Your king. And I don't think that ought to be coerced in that moment, will it? When they see Jesus and all his power and his authority and might, our only response, regardless of how you lived your life, will be, wow, <laughs> amazed, wonder, awe, awestruck. And so this idea of giving our words to God but i think it also includes our emotions how can you avoid the fact that the psalmist is emotional look look again at the verse i'd shown on the screen but if you're following along he says and may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you the, the beauty of god produces real feelings real feelings in our lives real feelings really emotions in our lives i was reading one day in my bible in philippians chapter 1 verse 25 this week and paul was talking about how that He knew the church there at Philippi needed him. The people needed him. And he knew that he had still much to offer to this church as far as discipleship goes and teaching goes. But he also knew that maybe his life was going to come to an end there in the prison, the jail where he was at. And so he was saying, look, I want to go. and I want to be with God. Part of me does, but part of me just wants to be here with you because there's still so much to do. And he says, I'm torn between the two. Like, I want to be with God. That's how much he he valued God. He said to to, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And he said these words. He says, in in verse twenty five of chapter one, he says, "Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. For your for your progress, for your growing, and also your joy in the faith." And so I can't help but see this emotion that Paul once, The the believers, even in their struggles, uh, they're so much worse off than what we are. And he wanted to stay there and continue to help them see Jesus more clearly so they could have joy in the face. So worship is, is, is joy. It's expressed in joy. And joy doesn't always mean that you're smiling and you're happy. If you're going through a tough time, Jesus still says in his word, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you can rejoice, always. And, and that's not on my authority. Maybe you're thinking, I don't get it. how to do that. All right, I, I Live my life one day in my shoes and then show me how to do that. But see, it's not on my authority. It's on God's authority that he says that it's possible if we stay tethered to the cross, connected to the vine. And then the living sacrifice side of it. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I think it's worth reiterating that... A living sacrifice. I think Paul wants to specifically show, like, offer your bodies as living sacrifice because so many times we separate out the spiritual from the physical and we think that everything's like inward and, and it's abstract. And I think he's getting to just, this is very practical, it's very total. It's just offer your body as living sacrifice. We'll come back to if you're sitting here thinking, well, I just don't understand how to have more awe of God. I don't understand how to have more wonder of God, more more seeing him more clearly. I don't get how to do that. We'll get back to that. But Let me go to the second thing. So a true view of God will free and empower us to live for Jesus. And then the second one is found in verse 3. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So number two, a true view of ourselves will free and empower us to live for Jesus. A true view of ourselves will empower us to live for Jesus. So Paul is laying out here living the Christian life. And no matter how well grounded we may think we are in God's word, how theologically sound we may think we may be, how vigorously we may seek to serve him, we will not be productive in our relationships with other people until self is set aside, until we set ourselves aside. Because, I mean, how can you serve others? How can you really minister to others unless you set yourself aside? And so that's what he's getting at here. He's saying, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And I think there's a couple applications here. This idea of selfless service for sure flows from our spiritual worship to God. Without gospel-driven humility, we'll never, we're never going to be happy. We're never going to find biblical community because, one, our, our relationship with God, if that's off, then we won't be humble, and we'll never be able to minister this way if our relationship this way isn't correct. And so it starts with our relationship with God, but it always translates to ministry to other people, service to other people. And I I think in these verses, verse 4 and 5, if we read this again, for as one body has many many members, he's getting to the fact that the church has many members. He gives this physical picture here that some people are the hand, some are the foot, some are the tongue, some are the eye, that we're all part of this body and we're serving one another. But if you don't have humility, a couple things. One, you won't receive anything from anyone else because you don't think you need it. And chances are you're not going to invest your life in other people because you either don't think you have anything to offer or you think you're too good to get dirty and to minister to other people and help other people and serve other people. And so God, God has given us faith and he says he's given us these gifts and he said let's use these things. Let's, let's put them into practice because we need one another. We need one another. Sanctification, becoming more like Christ, is a community process. It's a community project. And just like the eye and the feet work together to walk, it'd be tough to know where you're going and navigate correctly without your eyesight, or if you had a tongue but no mouth, how could you speak properly? He's saying that we need one another. And we don't have time to go into verses 6 through 8, but he's saying, here are these gifts that you've been given to serve one another. God's given them to you. He's gifted you. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with us. He's in us. And he gives us the ability to step out in faith and to do the things that he's called us to do. And so can we make this really honestly as practical as we possibly can here? Are we serving one another? Are we ministering to one another? One of the beautiful things about K-Group is it scales it to a point where you don't feel overwhelmed by having to care for everybody in the church. And every time there's a need, you've got to run to Albany or Tallahassee or Thomasville to the hospital. Um, you, 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 we work in, in groups, we scale it where we care for one another in community. And that's why it's so critical and so important that we are in situations like K-groups where we can do that and we know that these people are our obligations. because. What is everybody's job, right, is nobody's job. And, and so if everybody's supposed to care for so-and-so who's in the hospital, and, and so somebody else is going to do it, not me, because that's really, you know, other people are more gifted at that or they feel more equipped or, you know, that's more their calling. And so it gives us a real practical way to care and love and serve one another. And so if you're not in a K-group community, then you're missing the opportunity to really, really get in and serve one another. And serving is, is, is tough, and it's difficult, and oftentimes we think, you know, I just don't know if I have what it takes spiritually. Well, if you've been in church for very long, you probably know a lot more and have a lot more information and knowledge than you think you do, especially if you're really, really cultivating the discipline of sp- spending time with God. I asked uh, Shelley Matthews to make a video. We love videos of people who are doing ministry, serving God uh, and she's going to tell a little bit about a ministry that she was involved in. And I want you to, as you hear her talk, I want you to think about your own life. Do you have life-on-life life ministry going on? Are you serving other people? Or are you just punching the clock, so to speak, with your one-time-a-month service here at the church? And, oh, I'm glad that's over and done. All right, I'll see you in a month. And your life isn't really involved in people's lives like we want to happen in Cakers. So watch Shelley's video.
0: When I joined the church I um, told John that you know my history and background growing up I really wanted to use it for good and so if he had anybody that needed someone to talk to about their experiences that may have had shared experiences um, that I'd be willing to do that and that's how I could serve. So that was a few years ago and um, you know, nobody ever came forward just about the last six months or so i was like well maybe that's just not a need. maybe there's just nobody that that needs to talk to someone like that but uh, lo and behold <laughs> john came to me one day and asked me to mentor a uh, young lady in our church who just needed someone to talk to we started meeting um, once a week for lunch and um, really just I shared my experiences with her, and she shared her experiences with me. And just knowing that you're not alone gave her, I guess, um, a feeling of peace, comfort, a little bit of healing, maybe, to know that she's not out there by herself, that she's got someone that she can talk to. She said it was a God thing that um, I was actually available to mentor her. We would talk. Um, during, it's usually over lunch, you know, it's, it's a comfortable setting to be eating while you're talking. I would always be um, intentional to say, well, you know, in the Bible it says this, and this is how I apply it to this situation. You have to take what you learn and apply it to your daily life. And sometimes that's hard, but sometimes it just, you know, God is with you in it and he just makes it work somehow. There were plenty of times where I'm like, I don't really know what the Bible says specifically about this, but I do know it says this and go with that until I have better clarity and God will give it to us in the time that we need it. So That's
1: awesome. And you can just see the joy that radiates off of her because she was doing something that God had equipped her and called her to do and using her experiences to impact somebody else in the body of Christ. And so everyone can do that. Everyone can be involved in someone's life, and like I said, the K group opportunities—you know—just really, really give you that chance to get to know people and to minister and serve and care for one another. I want to give you just basically two two cautions, and then we're finished. There's two ways you can serve. Two ways you can serve. The first one is trying to live up to the gospel. Trying to live up to the gospel is considering yourself having the abilities. And you may not think this in in reality, but this is what your actions say. And you have the righteousness to live as God calls you to live. That you think in yourself that you have the ability and you have the righteousness to live the way God calls you to live. But what happens is you'll soon discover that you're fooling yourself and you start to find life and you start to find people very frustrating and you throw in the towel and you give up. And usually these people are motivated by guilt Duty, obligation, um, those type of uh, those type of emotions. Oh, I better do this, or he asked me to do that, or you know, it's expected of me to do this. And you're not connected, you're not tethered close to Christ, you're not tethered close to the cross. And what will happen inevitably? You're going to burn out very quickly. Why? Because people are extremely messy, right? Extremely messy. You want to you want to see somebody very messy, all right? Very messy. Go home and look in the mirror at yourself, okay? And you're gonna see a very messy person. But most of the time, what we end up doing is we wanna see the mess out here and forget the grace and mercy that God's shown upon us. And then all of a sudden, we wanna be judgmental and harsh and critical and cynical toward everyone else rather than serving them as we've been called to serve. We're all guilty of that. Living up to the gospel, we become self righteous. The other second way, the way that we should live is serving out of our provision and hope in the gospel, serving out of the gospel. If we live out of the gospel, we admit our inability to live as God wants us to live and admit that we will get frustrated with life and people. But living out of the gospel means that we cling to Christ and his grace rather than relying upon ourselves, rather than relying upon ourselves. So let's make this practical. I love this, this picture, this metaphor of a sailboat, a sailboat. This, this illustration dates back hundreds and hundreds of years. This guy said, the wind of God is always blowing, but we must hoist ourselves. What did he mean? It means that, that if we're living out of the gospel, then all of a sudden we see that while God is the one that provides the energy, he's the one that moves the ship. He's the one that brings his grace into the moment. Our job is not just to be a passive participant in that, but our job is to hoist our cell and to be involved in what he's doing, to to take action, to do what God has called us to do. And how do we draw our cell? We draw near to God, plain and simple. We draw near to God. How do we do that? The things that we reiterate and talk about time and time again in this church, a humble faith, the humb- humility upon Christ and the gospel. I said this back in the, the Colossians series. I want to say it again. Maybe you just need to say this prayer to God. God, I want to want to love you more than anything else in life. Maybe you're not at the point to say, I want to love you more than anything else in life, but you're just at the humble place where you say, God, I want to want to love you. Humble, gospel-driven, falling on our knees before the cross each and every day. It's practically hoisting ourselves where God's grace can work through it in our lives. Most of us like something to do. There's something that you can do. You can begin from the heart praying that prayer to God. God, I want to want to love you most. Prayer in God's word, understanding what his word says, learning it more and more, repenting, intentionally being around people who are going to be, as I say, intentionally intrusive in our life, who will call us on the carpet when they see things, who, who will confront our sins, things that we begin to put into the rhythm of grace. First Sunday fast. Fasting is a good way. It doesn't make you magically closer to God, but it makes you remember your need for God. As you skip a few meals, all of a sudden you think, Oh man, I'm hungry. And he says, God, help me hunger for you like I hunger for food. God help me to seek you for nourishment and strength in my life. And it's a reminder. And serving. Serving is worship. I think about the guys who come in here and set up the gym every Sunday. And today when Mitch and I were praying early this morning, I said, God, I pray you'll help the guys who are setting up the gym this morning to remember that this can be an act of worship for you. And Mitch and I, as we were in here doing some stuff and dragging things out, you have to remember, just like, God, it's your breath in our lungs. I I pour it out to you. The same thing as as I'm dragging this tarp or as I'm sitting here in the circle with the kid. God, I pour this out as worship to you. This is my worship to you. And so you're serving out of the gospel rather than, oh, it's my duty. I guess it's, it's my month. It's my time of month. I get to work. Get to church and do my work, do my ministry. I guess i got to do it. And, you're, and you're, you're miserable because it's all about you. You're serving out of yourself rather than serving from the grace of God. I'm going to close it up here with just reading a couple things. I, I told you a few weeks ago I love to start out my day. And in fact, our entire family now, we start out our day with a book called New Morning Mercies. And this was, I think, Tuesday, last Tuesday, that this was our reading. And I just want to read this to you, and it'll be on the screen so you can follow along because it's, it's super good. It says, Life in a fallen world is hard. Ministry to fallen people is hard. Together they leave you exhausted, discouraged, and tempted to be a tad cynical. You simply cannot live with sinners and not be sinned against. You cannot live with People without seeing their true hearts revealed. I understand why people, after experiencing the hurt and disappointment that so often mars our relationships, decide to live in isolation or in a comfortable collection of terminally casual relationships. I understand why people say to themselves, "I've been taken once, and I won't be taken again." I understand why married couples choose to live a life uh, term a long term sorry a long term cold war relationship. That lacks intimacy, fellowship, and friendship and unity. I understand why ministry people often choose to live in functionally, functionally isolated from the body of Christ. I understand why adult children choose to live a great distance from their parents. I understand why many people dread the extended family gatherings that often accompany the holidays. I understand why people hide their hurt and refuse to talk about painful topics with one another. I understand why people don't ask. Uh, want to ask for help or give help when asked. I understand that none of us have ever lived in one single relationship that hasn't disappointed us in some way. I understand that relationships are hard, but there is one other thing that I understand. It is that for a believer, relationships are not a lifestyle option. No, they are an essential piece of God's calling between your salvation and your final resurrection. Biblical faith is fundamentally relational. And you can live that out of the gospel, or you can live it trying to live up to the gospel. I'm just going to close with the last few verses of chapter 12. I'm just going to read these, no commentary, because they're so practical they don't need any commentary. And then we're going to close. In verse 9, Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in, in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless that person who persecutes you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends upon you, live peaceably peaceably with all people. Let's pray. Father God, when we hear those scriptures, if we're not rooted in the gospel, if we're not rooted in your mercies, that's an overwhelming and defeating list of things for us to do in community because we know that relationships are hard and we've been disappointed so many times. But when we stay connected, when we stay tethered close to the cross, you promised that you would give us the strength, that you would give us everything we need for life and godliness, that there's no temptation that's beyond your ability to deliver us. There's no situation where you don't provide the grace to accomplish your will and to do your purposes and bring glory to you. And God, I pray that we will be a church that clings to the cross, not just corporately on Sunday mornings, but hundreds of us tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and every day of the week, humbly before you admitting our inability to live for you and cling to the cross for our power and for our motivation for living. We thank you for Jesus. May our love for you translate into a life of worship each and every day. In Jesus' powerful name we pray.